This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. I grew up in a white family in a very white community. I have two sisters, but I was the only one who was adopted. While I didn't have many issues with this growing up, recently I allowed myself to recognize that both of my sisters married racist men. The painful prospect of racism within a family. Coming up in this episode of Colors. The plight of black farmers. Dr. John Boyd, founder and president of the National Black Farmers Association, tells it like it is. USDA done an awful thing by taking land from uh, black farmers. So can, can I ask, how, yeah. how do they take away, when you say they take away the land, by what right are, are they able to do that? They foreclose to me illegally through the county committee system. Well, but based on what? I mean, did you owe them money that you couldn't pay or how do they decide? You can't foreclose on somebody if, if you don't owe them money, right? Let me try to break it down for sure. you. A spirited and sometimes tense conversation about the impact of systemic racism on black farmers. And Mr. Garnett, the gentleman in, in Mecklenburg County, uh, referred to uh, black farmers with, with racial epithets. Uh, one particular year, this gentleman spat on me. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe! I can't breathe! The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. And I'm white. I'm JJ Green, and I'm black. And this is Colors. Well, Chris, the hits keep on coming, and they keep getting <laughs> better each time. This week, we've got a guy on a show that I have been following for many years. And the funny part about it is, um, you and I talk about my neck of the woods all the time, you know, where I grew up. It's so interesting that this guy lives in that neck of the woods, but we never met when I was living there. You know, I think he was born in New York and later moved down. And, you know, um, you know, I think by the time he got uh, got started and got going, I had long left. But um, I'm so proud to say that we're talking today with Dr. John Boyd. He's the founder and the uh, president of the National Black Farmers Association. And he has done many, 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 many things. Uh, to help uh, not just black farmers, but Americans in general, including uh, being a part of the Clinton administration, a part of the Kane administration, Northam administration uh, in, in Virginia government and other uh, other governors as well and is involved right now. Today, we want to talk with Dr. Boyd about the plight of black farmers and the situation that black farmers are facing right now. So, Dr. Boyd, first of all, good afternoon and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, and and uh, so great to, to meet both of you, but especially you from from being from Brunswick County, and uh, my my counterpart uh, Linwood Brown uh, was from Warfield, Virginia, and uh, we really got got organized and 
and Mecklenburg and Brunswick County, Virginia, where the, the whole black farmer movement started. So great yeah. to meet you. Same, same here, sir. And I want to start this conversation off with the question of the hour, the day, the month, the year, the era, and that is talking about systemic racism. How has systemic racism impacted black farmers? Well, systemic racism has impacted uh, black farmers by basically uh, we're facing extinction today as I'm sitting here talking to you because of uh, the act of discrimination with the United States uh, Department of Agriculture, uh, with discrimination in the the top 10 banks where we just haven't been getting credit. Uh, But USDA done a done an a, a awful thing by taking land from uh, black farmers uh, during the, the peaks of uh, the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, where we lost millions of acres of land. And when we first uh, started organizing and uh, protesting and rallying around this issue in the mid-90s, USDA had 1.5 million acres of land and it's federal inventory that came from uh, black farmers like me. And uh, once we started to make progress in the courts, USDA immediately began to uh, uh, sell and and lease this land to uh, large scale white farmers that was on uh, uh, the county committee. So that discrimination uh, has led to uh, a drastic decrease in numbers from the turn of the century where we were over one million black farm family strong in the United States, representing 14% of the total population for, uh, for, uh, for farmers. And today we're down to about 45,000 black farmers that make a living farming mm-hmm. and then a host of other part-time uh, farmers and things of this nature. So can, we, can I ask how yeah. how do they take away, when you say they take away the land, by what right are, do, are they able to do that? Well, they would they were they were selling and, and uh, foreclosing on black farmers. Uh, when I say take land, I'm saying they they foreclosed to me illegally through the county committee system. This is the three member panel. That's well, but based on what? I mean, did you owe them money that you couldn't pay or how do they decide? You can't foreclose on somebody if, if you don't owe money. Right. Well, there's a there's a. There's been blatant racism, and let me try to break it down for you. Sure. Where, for instance, in Brunswick and Mecklenburg counties, uh, the county supervisor would only see uh, African-American farmers, black farmers, on Wednesday at 9 a.m. So all of us was lined up in the hallways uh, with the same letter, with the same time on on the top of the letter. Your appointment is at 9 a.m., and the Wednesday of that week. Uh, and Mr. Garnett, the gentleman in, in Mecklenburg County, uh, referred to uh, black farmers with, with racial epithets. Uh, one particular year, this gentleman spat on me, spit on me, yeah. whatever you want to call it. What, what year? All the black farmers had supervised bank accounts where white farmers were issued government checks to deposit into their accounts. We would only receive a, a fraction of what we uh, applied for to borrow. Uh, I don't think I've ever received a farm operating loan from the government more than $5,000. And let me jump in here really quickly. Chris, um, yeah. the individual 
There's another guy that he uh, is going to probably mention, a fellow by the name of Charles Featherston. I can remember my father, who was a farmer, and I've told you about that situation there. And Charles Featherston was one of those people who did very similar things to what Dr. Boyd is talking about regarding this individual in Mecklenburg County. So this may be hard to believe for you, Chris, because I can hear the alarm in your voice, but that's pretty typical when we have these conversations. But this is what I've been telling you about. Yeah, but what what year is this that... This is within my lifetime. That's correct. Okay, this is not 100 years ago. This is when I was a young man, a child. Well, you know what was alarming to me in my county where uh, many of my white counterparts knew the kind of discrimination we were facing and they never spoke up about it. And that just wasn't the way I was raised by my daddy and, and my grandfather, Thomas Boyd. When he said you saw injustice, whether it was against anybody, that you would step up and speak up. No white farmer in this county came to our defense when, when Mr. Garnett was referring to us with racial epithets. And I was sitting in his office one day mm-hmm. And a, a white farmer came in. He referred to him as Earl. Instead of him waiting to finish my application period, he brought the farmer in. And they had a whole conversation as though I was invisible. They had pleasantries. They were going down to Ryan's Steakhouse and have dinner in South Hill with his wife. <laughs> all of these things. And he passed him a, a, a farm operating check for $157,000 while I'm sitting there looking at it. I'm looking at the check he's handing them on a, a little long slip government check like they used to issue for tax returns, uh, tax refunds. And uh, on the way out the door, Mr. Garnett says, oh, oh, Earl, I need you to come back in here next week sometime and fill out the paperwork. I just I just done it on last year's numbers. So here this guy hadn't even filled out his loan application for that year. And I'm pleading with Mr. Garnett for a farm operating loan so I can plant and harvest my, my peanut and tobacco crop in uh, Mecklenburg, Mecklenburg County, uh, Virginia. And when they began to investigate Mr. Garnett, they said, well, Mr. Boyd said you spat on him. He said, well, yes, but, you know, I just accidentally missed my, my spat can and spat on that old boy. I mean, yeah. uh, how can you miss a spit can on <laughs> Yeah, and no, this, this, I mean, there's <laughs> this is the kind of discrimination, yeah, and racism. And when he came down to my farm, he wanted me to sign over a government check back to him in his name, and I refused to do it. Yeah. Well, I think there was a couple thousand dollars left in my account for that year, yeah. He wanted yeah. me to sign a check that was in his name, and he came to my farm with a loaded pistol on his hip. Uh, and I know for a fact he wasn't greeting white farmers in my county that way. This is the kind of uh, discrimination that black farmers facing it. And it appeared as though that we didn't even, there was no oversight, uh, no complaint process that was working. The Reagan administration closed the civil rights office in 1981. It, it was the worst thing, yeah. worst thing I could imagine in my lifetime. Yes, yeah, terrible. Let me, uh, Chris. Chris knows how I feel about all this. We've had this conversation in some sense before, but you are bringing, you're putting, you're putting, you're adding proof here of things that I've only talked anecdotally about. But I want to jump into something um, a little bit more 
specific to this process today we're doing, the lack of access to capital and how it's impacted black farmers. Yes. The lack of uh, right now, you can jump into right now where uh, the Trump payouts, uh, the former President uh, Trump and the and the China trade war issued uh, billions of dollars, one time 12 billion, one time 16 billion. Nearly all of those funds went to large scale white farmers and corporate farmers. And a fraction went to went to black farmers, Hispanic farmers, women farmers, Asian farmers in this country who are just not participating in these federal programs. And if you if you can't receive the monies when my competitor receives them, then it's going to make me hard for me to compete uh, where they. Uh, the, the loan amounts for uh, the participation, I'm sorry, and the farm operating loans, farm ownership loans, farm equipment loans, uh, rural housing loans, all those numbers are disparate for the federal for the federal government. And what's disheartening for me is uh, a lot of those programs were designed for uh, poor, poor minorities uh, as a last ditch effort is why the Jimmy Carter really pushed uh, the Farmers Home Administration uh, during his presidency. Uh, for poor poor people, low-income people. And now the whole program now is uh, being pretty much dominated by, by large-scale white farmers. And th- what they don't say, Chris, is I'm not lending you the money because you're black. That's not what they say. They send me letters now saying, well, Mr. Board, uh, you qualify, but you won't get funded this year. Uh, you can come back next year for the next funding cycle because we've given all the funds out in Mecklenburg County. They've given the funds to the same people they've been giving them to for years, which is their friends in the county. That's that's a more underlying type of discrimination uh, that's happening now. And uh, quite frankly, we're just not getting the monies. Uh, can I ask how big your farm is? Uh, about 1,500 acres. Yeah, I, th- I bring this up because you used a word at the beginning of this conversation when you said uh, they're trying to put uh, black farmers into extinction. My, I'm a generation away from farmers. My dad was raised on a farm. My uncles were farmers in Iowa. And um, they, the, it'd be hard to imagine now the farm that my dad grew up on that supported the family was 500 acres. Um, and there just ain't such thing as 500 acre farms anymore because it's just not efficient. So it seems like a lot of farmers, white and black, have been forced out in in exchange for these mega farms where these big companies take over and have thousands of acres of land where it used to be farmed by you and my uncle and, and my dad. And um, so, I mean, that's a little bit of it. I mean, what you're saying is outrageous. And, and of course, it's just ridiculous. But but I mean, in general, I think farmers have been pushed out by big agriculture, don't you? Well, farmers, farmers are struggling. All farmers are struggling. Uh, large-scale farmers, small farmers, all farmers in this country are struggling to hold on. But what I've been clearly saying, and a lot of people haven't been hearing me, is I should be able to deal with uh, whatever Mother Nature gets me, whether it's bad weather, whether it's floods or droughts. Uh, These are things that, uh, that are controlled by acts of nature. But I shouldn't be spat on. Of course not. It shouldn't be called a racial epithet. Of course not. And I you should be asked to, to uh, leave the office, come to an office on a certain day of the week. And in Brunswick County, we shouldn't have to wait for Charles Featherston to finish drinking liquor and take a nap 
us before he would, would greet black farmers. I mean, well, it, that's that's it's egregious stuff. That's absolutely illegal, is it not? That's discrimination. That I mean, yeah. The fact listen, that JJ, you said this happened in your life. I mean, this is after the the civil rights bills of the. But look, uh, Chris. What I've been saying is, why hasn't the Farm Bureau denounced this type of stuff? The Justice Department. So here's the thing. So here's what I want to say. I've had had meetings with the Justice Department, and I can tell you uh, it wasn't easy to get a settlement for this stuff, for for all of this egregious stuff. So here's uh, here's the discrimination that happened. Here's what I'd like to say. Just the existence of laws that make this stuff illegal doesn't make it not happen, Chris and, and everybody. It still well, happens. I, I want to go a step further. What happened at USDA, we still haven't changed the culture. Yeah. And uh, and I want to say this to, to Chris, too, because this isn't a Republican or Democratic issue. No. I haven't gotten loans under Democrats and I haven't gotten them under, <laughs> uh, under Republicans. Both have failed to really dig down and get to the root and the culture of the problem. And for instance, uh, we've we've had some settlements, and it's, it it shouldn't have took thirty years to get a settlement in the first place. While my white counterparts are participating every year in a farm subsidy program, while I'm fighting in court to to change the system. That's 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 what's been going on. We have to change the culture, and now our country is so divided by race, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm gonna speak to you in a personal way in the, in the county that I live in. I've never seen Mecklenburg and Brunswick County, Virginia, so divided by race that you can cut, a, you can cut the tension with a knife. Uh, and you see the Confederate flag, the Trump flag, and the, and, and the American flag at the bottom, flying in these yards and the pasteboards on the house. And President Trump, I'm sorry, he, he really divided this country and brought out hatred and division and, 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 and just destroyed race relations in this country. And I believe we're probably 20 years away from where we should have been uh, trying to bring this country. Somebody has to bring this country together where well, you step out of New York City 20 miles. That's the real America. It's not New York City. It's not Los Angeles. It's not Chicago. It's out here in the country. That's that's the real America, the other 90 percent of the country that's so divided. Yeah. You know, as we wrestle with this today, and this is what we do every week, pretty much on this show, Dr. Boyd, <laughs> in one way or another. And, you know, it's not always pretty. You know, Chris and I don't agree about a lot of things. Right. Uh, we do agree on some things. We don't get into politics, but we deal with it. When it comes up, you have to deal with it. And it's just important to, to note what you said about our former president. That, that's something we can't avoid. It's, it's, well, it's a you, fact. And, uh, it's a fact. And, uh, Chris, uh, um, I ain't a spring chicken, but I, I hope I ain't over the hill either here. But, you know, going back to the Carter administration, I've, I've had some time to spend with every agriculture secretary. When they come in, they... They meet and greet farm organizations, and I, I, I always get the invite. Uh, so thanks, thanks for some structure in our political system, where that Republicans invite you, Democrats invite you. You come in, you meet the ag secretary, even if you don't see him anymore for the next four years, you get that opportunity to lay a few few of your issues out there. This was the first time uh, 
since I've been doing this kind of work that we didn't get any invitation from uh, former Secretary Sonny Perdue. And when I was able to get a meeting with him two years into the Trump administration, it was the worst meeting I ever had in history where Sonny Perdue said, well, Mr. Board, your, your, your members got to get big or, or get out. Hmm. Uh, you know, that he didn't want any, he didn't see a need to increase uh, minority participation on commissions and, and things of that nature. He didn't want any people there that was, was uh, tokens or lazy that didn't want to work. And I don't know a black farmer that's been denied so long. Uh, I work seven days a week. And when I get finished doing your interview, Chris, I'm going on out here and get back and get back and get back to work. I, I, as I said, I, this, yeah. black or white, that's the farmer's life, my friend. That's what I do. Yeah. yeah. So you can't sit there and say, you know, for one group of people, you, you get big or get out and we don't want tokens or lazy people. Saying that blacks are lazy is a myth because uh, ain't a lazy bone in my, my body. My grandfather. Not if you're a farmer, there's not because you won't survive. That's for sure. But that's what he said, though, is where I'm going with that. Yeah. That's what came out of his mouth. And right. we got to fix that in this country where stereotypical, you know, about walking to a county office, big black burly man with a hat on six foot one, 200, 250 pounds. I'm not there to hurt anybody. I'm not there to steal anything. Uh, yeah. It's we got to fi fix that stereotypical picture that we have a black man in this country. Yeah. And, and I, and I want to fix that. I want to change that so yeah. that we can, we can get on with some sense of normalcy in that country because it's, it's a bad feeling to have. In the last year, there's been another uh, curveball that's been thrown at everyone and it's taken a, a worse toll on the black farmer. And that is the pandemic. And I'd like for you to talk a little bit about how that's impacted the black farmer. The, the pandemic is, it has hurt us as well as the, uh, the, the China trade war, I believe, hurt us too. Uh, we'll be faced some of the lowest crop prices, uh, cost per acre in a, in a very, very long time. And then, then we didn't participate in uh, some of the government uh, uh, subsidy programs that were supposed to help farmers. That hurt us. And then uh, when the pandemic hit, uh, there were many smaller scale black farmers that had contracts with uh, restaurants and stuff like that uh, to where those, those contracts uh, were terminated. And then while they, they were trying to figure out where we fit in with the PPP monies, uh, the government was instructing uh, pretty much all farmers of every color to, to destroy the crops and uh, report your acreage back to USDA if you want to participate in, in federal programs. So farmers were caught in a, a very tough, tough, hard uh, uh, situation where um, I think we've lost a lot of farmers. I won't be able to find out those numbers to maybe later on this year. But based on the calls that we were getting, uh, like I said, it was there was such a gray area where they said, you know, we didn't qualify for PPP. And then uh, if you wanted to participate in any USDA programs, uh, those commodities had to be destroyed by a, a certain period of time. Uh, it, it is, it's, it's changed the way that uh, we do business. For example, uh, the cattle markets were closed for the first time that I've seen. The grain elevators were closed for the first time that I've seen uh, since I've been farming. I've never heard of my grain elevator closed or the cattle markets uh, not accepting uh, or buying beef cattle uh, uh, from us. So just to, 
tough, tough ball of wax to, to handle. And uh, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be different from here on out, I believe. Uh, the now, way- I, I'm just curious because you mentioned the change of administration. Uh, right. You obviously had a relationship with Tom Vilsack before because he, he is a previous Secretary of Agriculture, and now he's back to be Secretary of Agri- Agriculture again in the Biden administration, former governor of Iowa. Um, how do you get along with him? Well, I'm glad you asked, because uh, there was, the relationship was uh, sticky, I think is the right word to use, where uh, I worked on the Claims Remedy Act for the whole tenure. Uh, basically, that Secretary, Secretary Vilsack was there. And I thought that he didn't do enough uh, on civil rights uh, to settle the backlog of complaints from uh, minority farmers and black farmers there. And he didn't do enough to help help me on the Hill when I was lobbying for the Claims Remedy Act of 2010. So last February, when I I endorsed uh, uh, Biden for uh, president, uh, some of my people very close to me didn't didn't like it, uh, you know, but I'm. I'll be honest, I, I thought he was the best pick to, to unseat uh, President Trump, who we suffered under. And one thing he told me, uh, President, uh, then uh, Senator Biden then, said that there would be change at USDA and, and leadership. There would be new blood, and they would do things differently at USDA. So that was uh, exciting news for me. And then I got the news that, hey, you know, Vilsack's coming back for, for four more years. And we, we immediately reached out to uh, then uh, President Biden, and he responded in the Zoom call by saying, this this is my pick. This is who he wanted to come back to. He wanted to come back with someone with experience and, and things of this nature. So we were disappointed. I was disappointed that we didn't get new blood there at uh, USDA. But uh, since then, I've had uh, two telephone calls with uh, uh, now Secretary Vilsack, and he says, Chris, things would be different. Uh, as as my daddy taught me, don't watch what they say, son. Watch what they do. So I'm going to be watching what he does, and and uh, hopefully, you know, we're going to have to hold him accountable. So we're going to have to wait and see what happens there. Absolutely. I want to ask you specifically what the most important thing for the National Black Farmers Association is right now, moving forward. To save our membership, to save black farmers. We we don't want to lose any more farms. Uh, you know what. Uh, and I tell people all the time, when you when you lose your farm, you lose your way of life, you lose your history. And I, and now you know this, you, you lose a part of your name recognition in the community. Because when we ride on secondary roads, we say, hey, that's the Boyd, that's the Boyd farm. They live there. That's the Jones farm. They live there. We self-identified by where our farms were and where we came from in a, in a community. And uh, I believe if we lose all of the black farmers, we're going to lose a, a very important part of our history, whether whether it's good history or, or bad history, from uh, slavery to to uh, a Jim Crow to uh, a sharecrop, and we overcame all of these things. And here we are in the year 2021, facing extinction from uh, a reality tech that we probably can't control, which is the federal government. So our ultimate goal is to keep our farmers stable and keep them on the farm, and we want to. Uh, improve the, the total numbers, participation in all USDA programs, and we're really leaning on uh, corporate America. Uh, we haven't even talked about John Deere and Monsanto. Yeah, I was about to ask you about that, specifically John Deere and Monsanto. Yeah. Well, John Deere uh, has been uh, 
We've been trying to work with them on a national scale for, for 25 years. Uh, we have uh, an annual conference uh, the National Black Farmers Association has been doing for 30 years where we average about 700 participants. And we move our annual conference around to different states every year. So we give different members the opportunity to, to participate. And we invite John Deere to come out and other companies to display equipment, uh, show cutting edge technology of what we can be doing to compete. And they've never once displayed a lawnmower at our conference or a tractor at our conference. And uh, the service time, I have farmers in my community, matter of fact, one, one right across the road, he gets same day service when he calls to repair equipment and I've waited for my combine to be fixed this season. Right now, my combine is down with, with three codes on it. And I and it, the only way to start it is to, uh, for a John Dick technician to come out here and put the plug in the software and, and fix it and get it restarted. It's been sitting there for a month, uh, and, I, and, I, and I haven't had service. That's some of the differences and challenges. Uh, I can't get down like that. When it's time to cut beans, uh, there's a short window of opportunity to plant and harvest before the seasons change on you. You got to get out there and be able to get down. If not, you you lose money. So I have a portion of my crop that will probably rot. Uh, and uh, that's, that's the reality of it. Uh, there's no oversight. Uh, they seem to fall through the cracks with their, with their bank. They have a, they're the fourth largest lender in the world. John Deere credit is, and they seem to fall through the cracks with the regulators, with the OCC, uh, with the Financial Services Committee. I don't even think their bankers ever even came to answer questions in Congress about uh, the way that they do business. And uh, for, for Chris, they ain't treating white farmers good either. No. I mean, that's, that's, that's what I would say. I was just looking at the statistic that you referred to earlier, uh, and that is just 1% of farm aid recipients got about 25% of the payments in 2019. And the average payment for that group was almost half a million dollars. And here's another problem too. There are minority banks out there too that can well, lend yeah. money. So really we haven't gotten there. They got to tighten up here too. They got to tighten up. And uh, I would like to talk about that because uh, there are, there are uh, minority owned companies, uh, food companies, uh, there are, uh, Big name athletes uh, that I believe could uh, uh, elevate the issue of black farmers, and uh, it's great to hear Black Lives Matter. I mean, and I believe they do. But I tell you something: every black person in this country is two to three generations from somebody farm, mm -hmm. including me and you. <laughs> we came from a black farm, and you did, I did. Uh, we're all classified down here as Run Up River people. We know where we came from. Those persons have to step it up too. Uh, the big name athletes, uh, uh, speaking from the megaphone, that we need to do what we what they can do and what can do to work together to, to help save black farmers. We we shouldn't be totally dependent upon the government and the top ten banks when we own a percentage of uh, some 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 of corporate America too, and especially the athletes, uh, you know, who are really out there and, and, and basketball and some of these big names uh, in football and. Uh, I would like to hear from them, uh, you know, maybe a round table. Maybe you can help pull that together, uh, you know, bring these folks at the round table so I can educate them about what's going on uh, because we're at a crossroads. And if we can't start to get credit from somebody, 
we just won't be out there because uh, a bag of soybeans is sixty dollars a bag, and and uh, you know you got diesel fuel and lime and fur. All these things have to be paid up front uh, before you can even get going. So. Uh, I would like to call them out and, and call them out on your show that I think we can do better as blacks at getting behind and supporting the plight of black farmers. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. And thank you for being willing to say that something yes. that some people aren't willing to say. When you try to talk to them about it, when you say black farmers, it appears as though in the black community, the word black farmer has such a bad taste because of slavery, mm-hmm. because of the bad history with uh, uh, blacks and, and the South and sharecropping, all of these things. Uh, yes, those things happen, but we are still black farmers that own their farms. Uh, and uh, Granddad Thomas would say land ownership is the next best thing to freedom. And when you throw the plow in the ground and you smell the ground, he said it's the smell of heaven. Every step you take, every step you make requires land ownership. You can either own some of God's country or you can be trespassing and walk on somebody else's. Mm. Those are the choices that we have, and especially as blacks in this country. If we can afford a new Mercedes Benz, we can afford five acres in the country. Go out and buy some land. So those, those issues aren't white issues. Those are issues in my own community uh, that I'm working uh, uh, to improve. And, 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 and Chris ain't stopping me from buying the land. If I, if I can afford that new Mercedes Benz, I can take that down payment and okay. put it on five acres of land too. So <laughs> I like right. that. I, I tell it like it is. You and, did. And sometimes in the popular stance, uh, but that's what it is. And I believe that we can do better. And I want to change the perception of uh, farming and uh, agribusiness. Okay. I want more blacks to start looking at taking jobs in some of these agribusiness companies where we're totally absent. And I want us to start buying some of these companies, especially these athletes that can afford them to start buying some of these agriculture companies. Okay. Dr. Boyd, this has been a magnificent conversation. Chris? I think it has. And you know, what? you've asked me questions and uh, both of you have asked me questions and given me the opportunity to, to answer them that uh, many journalists uh, don't want to go there on. And, uh, I can tell you when I say something about John Deere, that little yellow box you see up there, <laughs> they take it off me and put it on somebody else. Well, we will go there. Chris will tell you we go there. Chris, I want to throw it yeah, to you. Well, I just know that this man's a farmer, JJ. He can't talk to us any longer. He's got a field to take, to take care of. I know how that works. That's right, JJ. Well, thank you all. Thank you both. And uh, I thank love this conversation. Thank you both for having me. And, and I really enjoyed being on your show. Thank you, Dr. Boyd. You're listening to Colors. My name is Cortland Cox. My, I am African-American. I was born in New York and lived most of my life in Washington, D.C. The question of race means to me that we need as human beings to be able to fulfill what has been talked about in the Declaration of Independence, where every person is uh, has the right to write life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that any obstacle that comes into that, any, any obstacle that is made in terms of trying to block us from doing that needs to be eliminated. So my life's journey has been 
to talk about and to see how we can to everyone, not whether you're black or whether you're Hispanic or whether you're gay or whether you're transgender or whether you're a woman, to make sure that all people have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Dr. John Boyd is one of the most impressive individuals that I have ever met, and a part of it has to do with, yes, the fact that we came from the same neck of the woods. Mecklenburg (laughs) County is uh, just uh, the next county over from Brunswick County, which is where I grew up in Virginia. And the individual that he mentioned during the course of our banter, I think before we started the podcast, was a fellow by the name of Linwood Brown, who uh, worked with him to help him start uh, his venture. Uh, The National Black Farmers Association started a baseball league uh, for blacks. And my dad played in that league for a team called the Gilliam Mets. Wow. Uh, And so I have known about Dr. Boyd and his associations, and there is a lot more history and a lot more to his story than him just being, uh, and I won't say that just, but him being uh, uh, somebody who is an advocate for black farmers. He's much more involved in life and in his community and has been for many years and people down our neck of the woods and people indeed all over the world now know that this is a really impressive guy who comes from humble beginnings but has done uh, amazing things but still humble in the process. Yeah, I I really enjoyed the conversation. He just was delightful. I will say there's one thing that I really, and this cuts across uh, any racial uh, divide. This has to do with what he's talking about farms and farmers losing their identity if they lose their farm. And I I say that because there used to be a town in Iowa called Cordova, and it's named after our family. And the reason it was called Cordova is because the core farm was the kind of the center of the universe there. And so all the houses built around it and stuff were basically people that worked on the farm or in some other farms that were around there. And if I go back there, to the area the farm itself doesn't exist anymore. It's underwater. It, I mean, physically underwater because they build a, they dammed the Des Moines river to uh, create a floodplain, but there are still parts of the farm there uh, and parts of reminiscent of, of where it was. And some buildings still stand a little bit off to the side, but I never saw so many mailboxes with the name core on it before I <laughs> went out there with my dad. And he took me around to where all these places where the farm used to be. And uh, also the, fact that that was the name of the town and that some of the roads still have our family names in it. Uh, And that is your identity when you're on a farm out in the country. Yeah, that's, that's the core farm. And over there is the O'Leary farm and over there, he was absolutely right about that. And that's kind of the shame, whether they're black farms or white farms, the, the idea that these little farms, small farms, you can't make it on 500 or even 1500 acres anymore. It's really hard to do. You need to have a lot of land and, they are going to go away. I mean, I just think whether it's it's not even racism, it's just in general, the smaller farms are going to go away. And that's too bad. That's that's been, a, a, you know, that's part of America's history and its backbone. Well, you know, I disagree on the, the fact that they're going to go away because that's what Boyd and people in his group, that's uh, 116,000 strong is trying to prevent. Uh, and I don't think that they're going to go away. I think there was there's been a time when these farms have disappeared 
for malpractice because of malpractice in U.S. government. And, you know, the scenario that he talked about with guys, guys like Charles Featherston and, you know, these other people that, you know, you, you, you just didn't get a fair shake from when you were trying to do what you needed to do to save your farm. Uh, and, and corporations, too, that 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 treat people differently and that value farms and farmers differently. I don't think that is going to crush these farms either. The reason that I don't think that is because we've real we've arrived at a place in our history where people recognize that if they had one acre of land, they could grow their food, they could put a home on it, they could own it, and they could not have to worry about where they would hang their hat or to, to feed themselves. It's not so much selling your food to make a living. It's just having a place to call your own. My mother's father owned 100 acres of land there and uh, eventually sold a good part of it. But, you know, therein, just as was your case, you could go down that area and just see it was the identity of that part of the family. Mm-hmm. Yep. And there's still people there who live there. And that's not, I don't think, going to go away. And I do think that there is going to be a revival in some of these places, a resurgence in some of these places because of where we are now. We reached a point during this pandemic where everything stopped and we had a chance to reflect and people were really going hungry all over the place, especially in some of these small towns. And people were thinking, man, if I just had an acre of land, I could grow some food. So I do think that the, the black farmers and all farmers will survive. Very interesting. Um, good discussion today. We uh, enjoy hearing from you. If, uh, if you'd like to write to us at thecolorspodcast at gmail.com, we would love to get your comments, uh, your questions, um, anything that you'd like us maybe to talk about on future podcasts, please let us know. I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black. I'm Chris Core, and I'm white. And this is Colors. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. Blacks have made a, the greatest effort of any group I know of in, in all of history to overcome what is arguably the, the most profound oppression in human history. Shelby Steele, a black conservative author, columnist, and documentary filmmaker, says African-Americans need to stop complaining about racism. I mean, it is amazing and for to sit and, and look under leaves to try to find some faint hint of racism is... Well, I'm going to be honest with you. You are people who do that are betraying their race. There are some things we agree on, but there are some things we disagree on, and you will hear it all. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. So as we go, we want to say thank you to some people. Hillary Howard, Mike Jakaitis, Dimitri Sotis, Ron Pemberton, Julia Ziegler, Joel Oxley, Audrey Henson, the WTOP social team, Gretchen Soren, Sean Anderson, Peggy Byard. Ari Isaacman, Roz Whitaker-Heck, Earl Robinson, Ernie Green, Angelie Chong, Katie Musselman, and for the music, Jesse Gallagher and Cosmic and Offshane. And most of all, thank you for listening. And just remember, keep talking to each other. And just as important, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.